We are joined by former minor league broadcaster uh, Mark Hauser. And uh, Mark, thank you for uh, uh, joining us. A uh, long time in the game, uh, about 20 years as a uh, minor league broadcaster. And uh, last year for you in the Southern League was 2004. And I know you stayed in Greenville uh, working at uh, uh, Wofford University as uh, its play by play man for uh, football and men's basketball. But uh, since then, uh, you have moved a long way from South Carolina. You're a long way from everywhere, and uh, catch us up. Yeah, well, first of all, Doug, thanks for having me uh, on your podcast. Yeah, my wife and I, my wife is an Oregon uh, native. She grew up in a place called Redmond, which is just a little north of Bend. She grew up in the high desert um, back in 1991, my first year broadcasting for the Greenville Braves in South Carolina, I was uh, lucky enough to figure out a way to get her to move from the West to the the Southeast. Uh, We got married in 1991, but part of the deal was she said, now you promise me at some point we're going to move back to my home. Uh, And after 20 something years and raising two daughters, an opportunity popped up three years ago through a, a wild a number of circumstances clicking into place where she got offered a job at Fields Elementary School, which is in Fields, Oregon, which according to the U.S. Census has a 120 people in terms of population. But really, uh, the heart of town, if you will, has 11 people. And she was offered the job uh, in a two-room schoolhouse that has a total enrollment of about 15 or 16 students. Uh, ages K through eight, and Jennifer took the job. Uh, she teaches now K through three. She has eight students, and she moved here a year before I did. We lived apart for about 12 months. I'd come out every now and then uh, to see her, or she came back for Christmas, and they offered me the job as school bus driver. So now she's the teacher at the school. I'm one of the school bus drivers for it. And we ended up moving uh, back to Oregon like she wanted. And, and I, I really love it out here, too. And now we're in our uh, I'm in my second full year here. She's been out here three seasons and uh, it's been great. We're we're enjoying it. We live in, in the high desert. It's one hundred and fifteen miles to the nearest grocery store. Uh, but uh, we have found a place that we really enjoy. Our daughters both also moved out this way and both have found pretty good jobs and are, are found steady incomes and seem to be enjoying being here too. So it's worked out nicely. Man, I have to, I complain about driving <laughs> 10 minutes. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, that is just, uh, I mean, I, it, it, and I've never been up there and, and I don't mean this in any uh, degrading way. I'm, I'm trying to be funny here, but I mean, you literally live, in a modern uh, little yeah, house on the Yeah, we, we sometimes kid around by, like about that. But you're right. There is, it, it is isolated. But here's the funny thing. You know, 30 or 40 years ago, or even 20 years ago, without the internet, without the cell phones, without the technology we have today, I could understand living in a place like this and maybe going out of your mind from lack of human contact. But technology has changed things to the point where through your cell phone, through computers, through the internet, you stay connected to the world. Um, So it really, yes, you are remote. 
it is two hours to go into a, a town with any sort of uh, population base. But because of the technology we have, you really don't feel uh, that isolated. It, it, it's, it's a nice thing, really. Well, what? Uh, so pizza delivery though isn't exactly no. You can, no, you cannot call Papa John's or Domino's and have them at your door in thirty minutes. That that's that's out. And here's the other thing: like Jennifer and I went into town yesterday. We went up to Burns. Jen had a meeting up there, and I I did the shopping, and I went to the grocery store, and I went to you know the pharmacy to pick up prescriptions. If you forget something, Doug you're without it till the next time you go to town. It's not like you can get back in your car and drive to the Seven the Eleven down the street. Yeah. I, uh, I'll, I'll have to come check out your town sometime. Uh, I don't imagine the tour would take very long. <laughs> no, but, uh, no, it wouldn't. Uh, but, uh, well, the, that, that service station with the burgers and, and, uh, and uh, chocolate milkshakes sound uh, good. So, you are uh, you are out there a long way from uh, uh, everywhere, but uh, it's sort of returned for you to to Oregon. I know you're an East Coast guy, and you grew up in uh, Connecticut. But uh, I think, like all of us that get into this business, you have to go where the job right. takes you. And you and I have a common uh, town, and that's Bend, Oregon. You and I both started our uh, pro broadcasting careers in central Oregon, uh, you in 1985, uh, myself in uh, 1996. And there's other guys who've worked in Bend, Oregon that uh, have been part of their pro career. Bob Hards, who's still the voice of the Midland Rockhounds in the Texas League. And then Joe Castellano, who's a friend of mine here in the Bay Area, who's gone on to work uh, with the Rochester Red Wings and does a lot of freelance uh, work for CBS Sports Network. Um, and other places he's been, um, he started in Bend as well, Rich Burke. Uh, former voice of the Portland Beavers worked in Bend, so uh, it's been a, a good area for uh, baseball, and that is uh, certainly it's a good area for everywhere. When you were there, it was about eighty thousand people, or it was about uh, twenty thousand people. Uh, it's now right, yeah. Bend has grown exponentially. I think I mentioned to you before we turned on the tape recorder that uh, in 1985, I was working in Rhode Island at an AM country radio station as the news director and really wanted to get into play-by-play, wanted to get into professional baseball. So I spent uh, the winter of 84 just sending tapes out to every minor league team in the country because what I did was Uh, During the summer of 84, I would go to McCoy Stadium where the Pawtucket Red Sox played. It was not too far from where I lived. And I would bring a tape recorder and recorded Pawtucket games into the tape recorder. Sometimes they'd let me use one of the press box booths if it was vacant because Pawtucket didn't have a radio contract at the time. I put together what I thought were my best two innings onto a cassette tape and sent them out to every team in the country. I went to the winter meetings in Houston that year, met a guy who is still to this day my best friend, a fellow named Pat McConnell, who is now a professor of communications at High Point University in North Carolina. And Mac and I got to be friends down there in Houston. At the time, he was the play-by-play guy for Bend, for the Phillies, he ended up getting hired to move up and was uh, took a job with the Lynchburg Mets. I called him one day. I'll never forget this. It was a cold, gray afternoon in Pawtucket. 
you know, I'm in my apartment. It's probably 14 degrees outside. I called up Pat and said, hey, just wanted to say hello. He said, funny, you called. I'm leaving Ben for Lynchburg. Do you want me to put in a word for you about the job here? I said, sure. Uh, I ended up talking to Larry Clark, who was the general manager then of the Phillies. And Larry said, it's between you and another guy. I'm going to have the owner, Jack Kane, listen to the tapes. And whoever we think is better, we're going to offer the job. Uh, Larry called me back a couple days later, said, we'd like to offer you our play-by-play job. You would start April 1st. You would do sales till the season begins in June. Um, We can offer you $500 a month and 20% commission. I said, that's great, Larry. I'm in, but what do I do when the season ends in September? He said, well, the mill will be hiring then, so maybe I can get you on there. (laughs) So I I packed up my little Chevy Love pickup truck and drove across the country, uh, got to Bend right around the end of March, uh, drove through a snowstorm up U.S. Highway 97 out of California, and when I got to Bend, the population sign, you know, the uh, welcome to town sign listed a population of 18,000 people. And now my daughter lives there and the population is well over 80,000. So the place has grown. It's huge. I can't find my way around very well when I go in because they're, all the streets seem to be brand new. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's Bend has really grown and, and my daughter loves living there. So we've kind of come full circle. Yeah, what what a beautiful town! I really enjoyed my summer up there, and and uh, Vince Guinness Stadium is your typical little um, neighborhood minor league ballpark. That's what I like about it. It's uh, you know obviously downtown stadiums are great, uh, but this one is not downtown. I mean, it's right there. Uh, you know, you're walking down the block next to uh, the houses, and you know, there's a shopping center. Uh, that serves as the backdrop players who used to have home runs on yep. top of the Albertsons. Um, but I mean, it just nestled right into uh, the middle of a, a neighborhood. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Jack Kane. Jack was not in Bend when I was, but I got to know Jack real well when he uh, oversaw the Portland Beavers. Uh, Vince Genna, who's no longer with us, but uh, the stadium bears his name. But he was uh, as active as anybody uh, as a member of the. Uh, I mean, he'd help out with the grounds crew and, and the stadium operations. So, uh, but no, I, that's what I loved about, uh, that ballpark. It, it just nestled right there. You're walking down the block. It's, uh, you know, sort of like Lambeau field is, uh, from what I've heard, I've never been to green Bay, but you know, where it just goes right in the middle of the, the it's a fabric. It is, of the, of the it area. is. And it was a neat place to begin my career, um, in professional baseball. I'll never forget and I don't know if you, I'm sure you had this experience as well when you were there, when the sun went down behind the Albertsons, the batters couldn't see a darn thing. Uh, the glare from sunset was so bad. Sometimes we had to take breaks for 10 or 15 minutes to let the sun sink a little bit lower because you couldn't see anything. Yeah, and that's, that was obviously the same way when we played. They put when I was there, uh, they put a a huge screen back of left field. It separated the there was like an alleyway uh, behind the left field wall and the back of the Albertsons, and they put a, a huge black screen up to yeah. block the sun a little bit. Uh, so, uh, but no, I really that's it's such a neat neighborhood ballpark, and I'm glad they still have uh, the College Wooden Bat League up there. 
So you spent quite a bit of time in Oregon, uh, 1985 and, and Ben, and then 1987 in uh, Medford. And uh, despite Medford being in Southern Oregon um, and I being a Northern California guy, I still have never been to Medford. Uh, but uh, what, uh, what do you remember about uh, uh, that and uh, the uh, just uh, your manager? Yes, there, it was. Uh, what happened was I did the Ben games in 85, 86 Ben lost their radio contract. And I ended up doing the PA for the Phillies in 1986. And then Fred Herman, who was one of the owners of the Medford club was looking for a play-by-play guy for the 87 season. Uh, he, I ended up getting hired by him. So I moved down to Medford for one year uh, before I got hired uh, by a double a club in Jacksonville and, and ended up moving into the Southern league in 1988. But Medford played at Miles Field. Uh, we were an Oakland A's affiliate. You mentioned Dave. Dave Hudgens was our manager. Uh, Jesus Hernandez was our pitching coach. And what I remember most about that <laughs> was we uh, they they did a lot of roster shuffling back then, and we would have a roster with thirty five guys on it. It seemed like forty, um, and we would have the a packed bus making runs from Medford, which was at the the far geographical point south in the Northwest League, and we would ride the bus all the way to Bellingham or all the way to Spokane. And, you know, nobody had their own seat. The bus was jammed up and crowded. Uh, uh, but I do remember on that team, Scott Brocious was on that team, and he ended up obviously um, – becoming a, a part of those Yankee teams that won world championships. Uh, he, and he was an Oregonian. He was from Milwaukee, Oregon. And I think he's still up in that area. now I think he's coaching college baseball. What a great guy. So Brocious was on the team. We had a fellow named Ron Coomer uh, who ended up making the major leagues, uh, a, a great line drive hitter. Uh, and, and but even though we had a couple couple three future major leaguers on that team, Scott Champarino, a pitcher, made it to the big leagues for a little while. We were terrible. I think we finished the year something like twenty eight and forty two. Uh, a really bad team with some good players. Um, but it was fun. I mean, I had a good year in Medford in terms of enjoying myself. And you mentioned Bellingham, which. Uh, no longer has uh, pro ball, but I mean, you had Everett, you had uh, uh, Tri Cities, Washington, uh, before its current stadium. Where Tri Cities was located right across the street from a football stadium. I want to say it was a high school field. Um, I only was there for one season. 85, Tri Cities was in the league. By the time I ended up with Medford in 87, Tri Cities was out and Boise was in. Uh, the Boise Hawks and Boise back then played uh, at a high school field. So I, I can't exactly remember where the Tri-City Stadium was, but it was kind of an erector set made out of aluminum bleachers. And it was probably better for the league uh, that they ended up no longer playing there. Yeah. Now uh, the, that ballpark uh, arrived when the Western league arrived in the mid nineties. So it's a much nicer uh, ballpark now so yeah Ben you got the the greenery and the, the northwest and uh, just an absolutely beautiful area and 
Uh, you mentioned you moved on to Jacksonville for three seasons, um, an Expo affiliate, and that was before the current ballpark. Uh, you were at uh, Wolfson Stadium, uh, which is on the same location uh, where the uh, stadium is and uh, right on the same plot of land where the Jacksonville Jaguars play. Uh, what do you remember about the old ball? Well, it was uh, called Wolfson Park. Uh, it had been built, I think, in the 60s. And when it was built, it was considered one of the nicest AAA stadiums uh, in all of baseball. Uh, by the time I got there in 1988, it had some wear and tear on it. Of course, Jacksonville by then was a double-A club. Um, I remember that the press box, to get to the press box, you had to walk up the stands, and usually you're hauling your equipment. You had to walk up the stands and then go across a catwalk to get to the, the, the booths, the radio booth in the main area of the press box. And you were high up and right over the top of home plate. Um, the stadium was old school. It had a brick wall, a big black hitters background out in dead center field. Um, we had some pretty good Expos teams then. I do remember that. Uh, we were one year after – I came in one year after Larry Walker and Randy Johnson played there. But we had some pretty good ball players come through. Jeff Hewson uh, was our starting shortstop in 1988. He went on to the bigs, I think, with the Cubs. But he was a pretty darn good ball player. Um, Greg Colbrin ended up playing for – the Jacksonville club, John Vanderwall was there when I was there. Um, we had some competitive teams. Uh, I remember most about Bend. I had such a good relationship with our field manager my last year there in 1990, Jerry Manuel, who, of course, went on to uh, manage in the major leagues at a couple different stops. But Jerry was a wonderful manager. And that was one of those years where, you know, Doug, I, I got into play-by-play -play when I was in my mid-20s. Play-by-play uh, -play baseball in my mid-20s. And when you're young and kind of the same age of the players, you gravitate toward the players. By the time I finished in Jacksonville, I was 30, and I found myself gravitating more towards socializing with the coaching staff. And I remember how welcoming Jerry Manuel was to make me feel a part of that that group of people and make me feel a part of the process that that was an important uh, step in terms of my development as a broadcaster. Cause as you know, uh, it's not just how you call the games on the radio. It's how you, you know, fit in and develop relationships with the guys you have to travel with for five months. For a lot of good things about Jerry Manuel. Uh, don't know him, but Sacramento product and, uh, and you know my hometown, or my uh, my uh, obviously broadcast hometown of uh, Fresno, and they take a lot of pride at Fresno State of boasting about Mark Gardner and John Hoover, and you had both those guys, uh, yeah, at the same time. And uh, Hoover, who pitched briefly in the big leagues, and then Gardner, of course. I mean, we know Mark very well from the Giants, or I do uh, from the Giants, and you know Mark's always at our banquets in Fresno. Uh, I mean, he grew up in. Grew up, born in Fresno, grew up in Clovis, uh, went to Fresno State. He's about as Fresno as you get. And uh, you had Yeah, we had, in fact, John Hoover that year, 88, was our opening night starter. I remember that. And he stayed with the club all the way through. He was the ace uh, the entire season. Um, that was an interesting year. And, and Gardner, of course, was with us the entire year as well. Really good fella. It was a weird season because, you know, like so many leagues, the Southern League had a split season 
you win the first half, you go to the playoffs, you win the second half, you go to the playoffs. Well, that year, Greenville, which was the Braves double-A affiliate and the team I eventually went to work for, that year they won both halves. They had Mark Lemke, uh, Drew Denson. They they were loaded. They had a very Brian Hunter ended up playing for them. Uh, they they had some excellent pitching. Kent Merker, I think, was on that staff. And what happened was Greenville won both halves. So the way they determined their playoff opponent was a wild card system where if you had the second best overall record you became the second playoff team. And that's not first half and second half. That's your record over 144 games. And things got so convoluted that Jacksonville had a game in late August in Greenville where it actually would have helped the Expos to lose a game to make sure that Greenville won the second half title. So we went into a ballpark one night knowing that the team's chances of making the playoffs were actually better if we lost. And I'll never forget getting off the bus, and one of the players asked our manager, Tommy Thompson, so we need to lose this game? And he didn't know how to answer the question. It was such a foreign concept. Ended up, we did lose that night. And on the very last day of the regular season, it was between Jacksonville and Columbus, Georgia, the Astros affiliate for that wild card spot, because Greenville did go on to uh, clinch the second half, in part because they beat Jacksonville that night. Uh, and what happened was we got rained out in Jacksonville. I don't remember who the, the Expos were supposed to play, but we got rained out. Columbus played and lost, and Jacksonville got into the playoffs by half a game. <laughs> Wow, it's, uh, that sounds like one of those uh, bull kind of. A, you need yeah, to exactly, out right exactly. Now. Uh, but uh, no, that's uh, I love Jacksonville. I love the setting right there on the St. John uh, River, and uh, in the, the the current ballpark there. I is I guess you saw the current ballpark. Oh uh, sure, yeah the the base. The yep, the baseball grounds, beautiful yeah, facility. Great, uh, yeah, absolutely, and. Uh, so you spent a long time in the Southern League, I guess 17 years would constitute that. And, and you know, I really knew more of you as, as a Greenville uh, broadcaster. And what an exciting time for you to, to be with the Braves because every year you were with the Greenville Braves, the Atlanta Braves won its division in all those years. Um, and uh, you, that, you talk about managers that you've worked with and you're talking about Jerry Manuel uh, with the Expos, but, I mean, Chris Chambliss, Grady Little, Bruce Benedict, Bruce Kim, Randy Engel, Paul Rungi, uh, Brian Snitker. I mean, look at that list, and and uh, you know, two of those guys have gone on to to manage in the major leagues. Uh, Paul Rungi's had a great career as a minor league instructor. Bruce Benedict obviously had a great career as a a big league catcher. Bruce Kim's gone on to coach in the uh, major leagues, but one of those names, Randy Engel. Um, I had a chance to interview Randy Engel a few mm -hmm. years ago uh, during my All-Star break in 2014. I, uh, the AAA All-Star game that year was in Durham, but he was managing the Danville Braves of the Appalachian League. And as you know, I love to go up and catch games uh, in other parts of the country. So Danville was home. It's only about yeah. an hour from Durham, as you know. And I'd heard a lot about Randy Engel. I've never had, of all the, the years I've been at, at this 
I've never had a Braves affiliate in any league I've been. So I don't really know a lot about the Braves in terms of their minor leagues. But I knew the name Randy Engel because he's been the one constant. And, Mark, I could have interviewed Randy Engel for yeah. three hours. Randy is a wonderful person. Um, he was – when I was with Greenville, the team won two championships. 1992, they won the Southern League. That was the 100-win team uh, with Grady Little running the club. And, of course, Chipper Jones and Javi Lopez were both on that team. And then 97 was a ragtag bunch of double-A veterans – uh, guys who were, you know, topping out, but they decided, you know what, we'll show what these older guys can do. And under Randy Ingle in 97, uh, Greenville won their second Southern League championship. But Randy Ingle is a salt of the earth guy from a small town in North Carolina. He's from Forest City, uh, went on to play college baseball at Appalachian State, where he had a tremendous career, set a bunch of records. Uh, school records in baseball. Eventually, a lot of those records were broken by a, game, a guy named Mike Ramsey, who I met later on is when he was manager of the Mobile Club in our league. But Randy Ingalls, one of my favorite people in all of baseball. In fact, the two favorite people I have out of the Braves system uh, were Randy Ingle and Brian Snitker, both longtime guys with the organization and just the nicest, most genuine human beings you would ever meet. Randy was an excellent manager. And of course, Snit, I had him as my manager for four years. Uh, the last four years, the franchise was in Greenville. Snit was the, the field manager. And he's he's great. I, when I found out Brian Snitker was going to get a shot at the major leagues, that was about as, uh, as big a smile as I, I've had in years. And then to see him have the, the success he had. Uh, getting the Braves into the playoffs, that was it was wonderful. I, I couldn't have been happier for him. Yeah, I mean, great, great names. And everyone says the same thing about uh, Brian Snitker. I mean, a, a man you know real well, Steve Selby, who, uh, you know, voice of the Memphis Redbirds. You knew Steve when he was with right. uh, uh, Huntsville uh, broadcasting. I mean, Steve had Brian Snitker and Grady Little. Uh, when Steve was broadcasting the Durham Bulls when it was a Carolina League club in single A. Uh, but, no, I, I love talking to Randy Engel. And, you know, and one of the things about Randy Engel and, is that he has always been a brave. And I, I said to him, you know, Bobby Cox and Hank Aaron, as synonymous as, synonymous as they are, as braves, you know, Hank Aaron went to the Brewers for a little bit. Bobby Cox went to the Blue Jays for a little bit. Of course, Bobby was with the Yankees at one time. But – but Randy Engel has always been a brave. He hasn't changed at all. And he, I mean, he was having a hard time coming up with anyone else who's been consistently a, a brave with, uh, you know, with no interruption. I guess maybe Brian Snitker as well. But uh, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, your time with Greenville and that uh, team in '92, uh, that 100-win team. What do you remember about uh, Chipper Jones uh, when he was about? Uh, uh, well, Chipper did not spend the first half with Greenville. He spent the first half in Durham. And I remember he hit in the 270s in Durham, and they promoted him at midseason after the Greenville Braves had won the first half. Uh, they brought him up. Mike Mordecai had been our shortstop. They moved Mordecai to AAA, and then here comes Chipper. Um, and everybody's like, well, you know, he only hit 270 at, at Durham. How's he going to adjust to AA pitching? I think he went I'll, – I'll never forget this. He went one for four in his first game as a G-Brave. And 
Then in his second or third game, he came up. Grady was batting him, I think, third in the lineup or maybe second. He comes up to the plate with a runner at second base with nobody out. And he, you know, the Braves were big on fundamentals and he committed a cardinal sin. He had a ground ball to the shortstop and the runner couldn't move to third. And I happened to be in the dugout before the game the next day. And and I just happened to hear Grady Little talking to Chipper. And he said, you know, we won 50 games in the first half. And he, he, Grady's got that Texas accent, you know, where well, we won 50 games in the first half. You know how we did that? Because when there was a runner at second base and nobody out, people hit ground balls to the right side. And I'd like you to help us win 50 games in the second half by doing that. Um, and uh, eventually Chipper uh, hit something like 320 in the second half. He had nine triples, 10 home runs in just half a season uh, and led the team into the playoffs. And of course, uh, Greenville won the whole thing. They won 100 regular. We won 100 regular season games that year and then uh, won the championship series in five games over Chattanooga. But I do remember Grady Little talking to Chipper Jones saying, hey, we know you're a great player. We know you're going to do good things for this this team, but you still got to do what everybody else does, and that's play fundamental baseball. Yeah, well, he's played fundamental baseball enough to uh, be enshrined in Cooperstown. We're with uh, former uh, – Southern League uh, radio play-by-play man, Mark Hauser, and, of course, Northwest League uh, voice uh, as well. So two leagues and two teams in each league uh, for you. And uh, uh, you had Chipper Jones. We did. Andrew Jones. I remember he was 17 years old, and he was a man. Um, He played six weeks in Greenville. Uh, That would have been, gosh, 1996, I think. Um because he ended up playing in the World Series for Atlanta that same year. He came in, hit whatever it was, 369, 370, hit a bunch of home runs. And people may not remember, because Andrew slowed down in his later years, but when he came up to AA as a 17-year-old, he may have been the best defensive center fielder I ever saw with my own eyes. He had a tremendous arm. His range was, you know, the best in the league, certainly. Uh, so he was a great defensive player. He could steal bases. I mean, you want to talk about a 5 2 player, a plus player in every aspect of the game. That was Andrew. Um, he, he spent, like I said, six weeks and then went on to Richmond and ended up playing for Atlanta toward the end of the year. But he he was he was unbelievable. And I hate using the word unbelievable because it's so cliche, but he actually captured the essence of that word as a 17 year old playing in a league where the average age was probably closer to 24 or 25. Um, He was a joy to watch, you know, my limited dealings with him, good guy. Um, But when I think about Andrew, I know he hit close to 400 major league home runs but there was always that thought that guy could have been the next Willie Mays, and it, it never quite panned out for him. But, boy, when he was a young guy coming through double-A, there was nothing like him. Yeah, he was that uh, that next wave of, of great Braves because Chipper was ahead of him briefly, and then, you know, you looked at the, the Glavins and the Smoltz and uh, uh, Steve Avery's and, uh, you know, I'm right. talking the homegrown Braves here. 
and uh, and then uh, you know, and then it was Chipper was in that that next group, and then Andrew Jones, Javier Lopez, uh, uh, right after uh, uh, that. Uh, of course, baseball uh, affiliated baseball or Double A baseball left Greenville. Uh, I know they have a beautiful new ballpark uh, near downtown where the Red Sox have a South Atlantic League team. Uh, but uh, what I remember, I mean, you spent uh, 14 seasons there about uh, the stadium. You know, when it first opened, and I wasn't in the league when it opened in, oh gosh, it would have been like 1986 or something like that. I was not in the league, but I remember hearing from players who were in the Southern League that when the ballpark first opened, it was considered one of the nicer facilities in the Southern League. But by the time it was done, uh, you know, so many other cities had new ballparks or had spruced up their old parks. Uh, It was time for Greenville Municipal Stadium to be retired. Uh, The biggest problem was it didn't have any sort of cover for the fans. So anytime it rained, there was no roof. Uh, So anytime it rained, fans would have to run back out to their cars in the parking lot to stay dry or huddle to stay dry or huddle under the little alcoves uh, beneath the press box. Uh, But that stadium outlived its usefulness. And I do remember because after the 19, the uh, 2004 season, which was the last year for the Greenville Braves, the Greenville Bombers played there for one year. That was the team that moved from Columbia, South Carolina to Greenville and eventually became the Greenville Drive. They had a transition year in the old ballpark in 05. I was the official scorer for them that year. And then in 06, the drive moved into their nice downtown stadium in Greenville. But that stadium outlived its usefulness pretty quickly. That's what I remember about it. And you know, with no covering, when the sun was out, it got hot and the concrete would uh, absorb all of that heat. And then when it rained, there was no place for the fans to go. Sort of. It's been overgrown. I know they they built a big Little League complex in that area and they may still use it for some Little League or Babe Ruth type games. Uh, I don't know the. I don't know what it looks like now, honestly. Yeah, I think that's where we first met. Uh, you know, yeah. I had lunch, and I met you over the ballpark, and gave me a tour of it. And uh, uh, and uh, but uh, no, definitely Greenville's got a, a, a beautiful new state. I say new. I mean, uh, current stadium as well. So I got to ask you, the worst hotel <laughs> you ever stayed at in minor league? Well, it's a tie. Between the Camellia Hotel in Columbus, Georgia, we stayed there in 1988 when I was with Jacksonville. Um, The thing I I remember most about that place was when we got off the bus, uh, there was a Denny's nearby and a couple other restaurants, and somebody affiliated with the Columbus team said, don't go out at night alone. That That was reassuring. Uh, <laughs> the other place that was awful was, uh, do you remember when, uh, the port city roosters were in existence in Wilmington, North Carolina? Yeah, I know that. Yeah. My buddy, uh, David the Kelly the team, was the yeah. play-by-play guy, but for two years, there was, uh, yeah, for two years, well. there was a team in port city, Wilmington. And in may they have the Azalea festival 
So it's almost impossible to get, you know, a reasonably priced hotel room. And as you know, Doug, uh, minor league teams are always looking for the most reasonably priced hotels. And they couldn't get us a room when we were in there. So we stay, I can't remember the name of the place, but we stayed in an absolute dump. It, it was, it's one of those places. If you walked on the carpet with bare feet, your feet turned black within five minutes. It was, it was terrible. We spent four nights there and glad we don't have, I was glad we never had to go back. You know, I'm a, I'm a point holder at the Camellia <laughs> Hotel in Columbus. But, uh, uh, okay. I don't, e- I don't even know if it exists yeah, anymore. But, that was a long time ago. Well, <laughs> I keep it in business. No, but I've, I, I've not stated either. I've never been to Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. I've, I've, been to, I've actually seen the ballpark in Columbus, but I've uh, not stayed at the Camellia uh, Hotel. Uh, last question for you. Uh, oh, that's easy. That's easy. You, um, my first year, my first double A road trip. Um, we were going from Jacksonville to Memphis. <laughs> so we were going from oh. the shores of the Atlantic to the banks of the Mississippi. And back then, this would have been 1988. There was no 500 mile rule. So we leave Jacksonville somewhere around midnight, three hours into the trip, we get stuck in Lloyd, Florida, which is in the panhandle, uh, somewhere between (laughs) Tallahassee and and, uh, Pensacola because the bus broke down, sit there for a couple, three hours. And then the bus driver trying to get to Memphis gets lost in Mississippi somewhere, took a wrong turn somewhere in Mississippi. We got to Memphis at three in the afternoon for a seven o'clock game at Tim McCarver Stadium. Uh, The manager, Tommy Thompson, said, go to your room, rest for an hour, throw your bags in there. Five o'clock, we're on the bus to the ballpark. Uh, so that we started at midnight and ended up getting to the hotel at three in the afternoon. So do the math on that. That's um, 15 hours and then played that night. And wouldn't you know, we had a day double header the next day. And that was my introduction to life on the road in double A baseball. <laughs> yeah, well, that's I've had a few of those, too, uh, you know, breaking down between Wichita and Shreveport or between uh you know, Alexandria, Louisiana, and Lubbock, and you get in at a mid-afternoon, and yeah, it. Uh, uh, well, it's no different being in the PCL, flying all day cross country, and and getting in at three in the afternoon. Yeah, but you sure as night. heck don't want a plane uh, breaking down. No, 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 we we don't do that. I know I had said one last question, and one other note uh, for you. Uh, of course, 1994, the year Michael Jordan. Was I shook his hand once uh, when Birmingham came to Greenville. I shook Michael's hand around the batting cage. Didn't really have a chance to talk to him much. Uh, they really made sure he didn't mix and mingle too much with the uh, Hoy Polloi. He did hold the press conference after the first game uh, where he talked to the media en masse. Never met him. I did see him make a diving catch in the outfield, and I did see him get out of a rundown 
uh, he snuck his way around our third baseman with what he later called a head and shoulder fake. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did see him play and, you know, obviously he's one of the world's greatest athletes and he made some athletic moves, uh, but he really wasn't much of a baseball player. I, I, honestly, people still ask me to this day, had he stuck with baseball, would he have made it to the major leagues and been a productive player? I don't want to put anything past Michael Jordan. And I think if he put 100% of his time and effort into baseball, that he probably could have in some way been a major league player. But uh, what I saw was a guy who was really good at basketball that was playing baseball. Yeah, I I mean, I went there every day, and I know he had a great work ethic from what everyone says. And the, obviously our good friend, Kurt Bloom, the radio voice of Birmingham, loved uh, working with him and uh, and all. But, uh, uh, you know, we'll never know. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I, I bet you he would have had a call up to the big leagues just more for publicity, but the strike hit in 94, and, uh, and I know he never got back at it. But uh, I figured that you must have uh, uh, maybe had a chance to meet him, and, uh, and you said you uh, – you did. Well, Mark, uh, your stories are phenomenal, and uh, you've been uh, around the country and have seen so much during your uh, uh, 20 or so years broadcasting baseball and uh, continued uh, uh, fun up in uh, up in southeast Oregon. And I'll one of these days I'll try and get uh, would love to have you. And if uh, any of my old broadcasting buddies are listening and you happen to be in Harney County, uh, look me up. Love to have you. Mark Hauser, our guest here on Baseball Broadcasters, talking baseball.